Have you ever noticed how easy it is to see the flaws of others while being blind to similar ones in our own life? You know, if so, you may enjoy the following story told by a woman. It's actually a true story. She writes the following. She says, while waiting for my first appointment in the reception room of a new dentist, I noticed his certificate, which bore his full name. Suddenly, I remembered that a tall, handsome, athletic boy with the same name had been in my high school class some 30 years ago. Says, upon seeing him, however, I quickly discarded any such thought. This bald, heavy-set, gray-haired man with a deeply lined face was way too old to have been my classmate. <laughs> Says, after he had examined my teeth, I asked him if he had attended the local high school, and he said, yes. And I said, well, when did you graduate? And he answered, the class of 74, why? She said, well, you were in my class. And he looked at me closely and then said, I don't remember you. What class did you teach? <laughs> Ouch! Oh! I was thinking of saving it for Mother's Day, but... <laughs> think thinking it would be appreciated as much as it was today. I mean, you know, we're, we're all there, you know, we have these flaws and, and we can see them in others, we can't see them in ourselves. And, you know, today in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we meet a man who experienced such a shocking moment. He asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? And was stunned by his answer. So if you'll turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, we're going to address both the question and the answer. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. We read these words. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. You know, this passage, we're going to look at four points as they relate to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? And first you'll notice uh, from your outline, the determination of the lawyer to prove Jesus wrong is found in verse 25. And as you see that, he says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, we realize that by this time in Jesus' ministry, the scribes, particularly here, the lawyers and the Pharisees, had had enough of him. You know, they felt that he had embarrassed them on numerous occasions. They found him to be eating with sinners, which they detested. He was feeding his disciples on the Sabbath, and later, a week later, on another Sabbath, he healed a man who had a withered hand in their midst, in the midst of the temple. And, it was, and then he went on to proclaim that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that he had every right to do that, since as God, he established those rules to begin with. And they detested him for that, and it was, a, it was continual confrontation. So it, it, it isn't hard or surprising to find that this lawyer was putting Jesus to the test. Now, some of you may say, well, Chuck, you know what? I mean, aren't we to test God? And it depends on what you mean by testing him. For example, in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, the Lord says to, to Israel, you know what? Test me in these things. When he's talking about his giving, see if you can ever outgive God. Test me in these things, and you give to me and see if the storehouses of heaven will not be opened up to you. And the point that he was making is, is that all of us in some ways test God. You know, is what you're saying truthful? Is it reliable? Can we depend on it? God, if you say don't do this and I don't do that, will I be blessed as you say that I will? You know, we told Israel the, of this day that you, you have a choice between choosing good or choosing evil, cho- choosing life or choosing death. And, you know, make the choice and see if what I tell you is not so. I mean, how often we look through life and go, well, you know what? wonder if we really do reap what we sow. You know, how do we really know that for sure? Well, you know what? When we choose to do that which is right before God, we'll find that we'll be blessed as he promises. If we choose to do that which God calls sin or wrong behavior, we'll find that, you know what? We're going to reap the consequences of that which we've sown. And so in many ways, we test God, and God says, go ahead and test me in those things. But how do we know that the testing that this man had was, wasn't legitimate, the same type of testing? You know, I really want to know, what is it, Lord, you know, that I got to do to inherit eternal life? And the problem is, in the word that he uses that says that the lawyer put him to the test, the word test or tempt in this particular case is only used two other times in Scripture, and it's the same word that is used when Jesus rebukes the devil in the wilderness temptation where he says, and you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so we know that the motives of this man are evil and that his intention wasn't to find out truth. His intention was somehow or another to stump him, to cause him to stumble, to try to catch him in some type of a lie so that he could disprove that he is who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so his heart was wrong before God. In other words, what he's saying to you and I is this. You know what? Don't ever test God in a way that tries to trick him as if somehow we could. Because you're going to find that this man, as all of them did, whenever they tested Jesus, whenever they try to get him to stumble, they all end up falling into the pit that they dug for him. And so at the the end of the day, he's saying, you know, you can test me to see if my word is true. If you do what is right, I'll bless you. If you do what is wrong, there'll be consequences. You know, if you test me in those things, find out that it's true. But don't ever tempt me as the devil tempt me, and don't ever tempt me as this lawyer tempted me or tested me to somehow disprove me before others. You know, this lawyer's heart was not seeking God or truth. 
He wanted to prove Jesus wrong. And even more so, he wanted to show off before the crowd that had gathered how much knowledge he himself had. Because after all, he was a lawyer, he was a scribe, he was an expert in the law. He recognized and understood the law. He gave counsel to others. And really what it was, it was kind of like, I'm going to take on Jesus, call him out in a crowd, and show the crowd how much more I know than he claims to know. And Jesus, as always, as God, knows our hearts. And so it's just, it's a shame because if you look at the question, it's a great question. Not only is it a great question, it's probably the singular greatest question any human being could ever ask of God, our Creator. God, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do this side of eternity to ensure that when I die, that I'll be in your presence? It's fascinating to me in our culture, you know, so many people, if they're asked the question, do you believe in heaven, you know, the majority of people in the United States believe that heaven exists. Not very many people believe that hell exists, but at the same time, they believe heaven exists. And the majority of people, if you ask them if they're going to heaven, they would say, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Based on what? Well, based on the fact that, you know what? The alternative isn't that attractive to me. (laughs) I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It's like, well, based on if those are the two options, I'm thinking heaven. And so it's a great question. It's, a, it's, it's the question that every person that, that, that hears my voice today, I would plead with you, implore you, beg of you to ask that same question, but to ask the question with an open heart, to ask the question with a heart and a mind that says, God, I really want to know that truth, and then whatever you say to me, your will be done. I will do it as you say. See, this man didn't come to Jesus with that question with an open heart. He came to him trying to trick him. And it really didn't matter at the end of the day what Jesus had to say because this man had already made up his mind about who he thought Jesus was. We need to come to God with an open heart. We need to come to God setting aside all our predispositions. We need to come to God setting aside all the things that we think that we know. And ask God to confirm the things we think we know with his word. And the other things that we're not sure, show us so that we will know your truth. God's truth sets us free from the lies and from our own deception. Having deceived ourselves, God will set us free. So the greatest question, and it's just too bad the man came with the predisposition in his own mind. You know, what's really sad is he also represents, if you recall from our last message, he represents those who are wise and intelligent in verse 21 of this same passage. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to babes. This man represented the wisest and the most intelligent of his day, and God's truth was hidden from him. Because he was not open to it, it would not receive it when it was spoken. You know, and in, 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 in this, there's a warning to you and me, and I hope we don't miss it, and that is this. If you want to know the answer to this great question, you must seek it with an open heart and be willing to respond accordingly. Why do many miss God's truth? And the reason is simple. They're not looking for it. People miss God's truth because they're not looking for God's truth, but they seek to justify themselves, their beliefs, and more importantly, their behavior. 
I want you to give me a stamp of approval in the, the way that I live and the things that I believe, and I'm not really interested in hearing anything else. And if you do that, then we'll be okay. But if you say something else, I'm not interested. See, Jesus, being God, knows all things. Yet he didn't call this man out, nor his motives or his intentions, but he kindly, if you'll notice, gave him the answer. In the direction of Jesus to the lawyer, we see that he said to him, to the lawyer, what is written in the law? And how does it read to you? I like that, because in his response, Jesus gives direction. He points the man to the answer, and as always, it is in God's word. He says, well, what does God have to say? And what is written in his word? I love the profound simplicity of his direction. He said, you know, if you have a problem, if you have a question, if you need counsel or you need direction in life, he goes back and says to you and me, well, what is written? What does it say to you? What is God saying to you? How is he speaking to you? And as those who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, believing that his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection was on my behalf individually, your behalf individually, having come to that conclusion and believing him and receiving him as Savior, the Bible says the Spirit of God lives within us and we can go to God and say, Lord, show me your truth. What are you saying to me specifically about this situation in my life? Why did Jesus point the man back to the law? Because in it we learn that we can't do what it tells us to do. We can't do what God tells us to do. You know, an example is in in the book of Exodus. You know, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, which is a great reference point uh, for people that, you know, we might run into in the day who say, hey, you know what, well, you know, I live according to the Ten Commandments. And then in order to ask them the next question, which is the most logical question, well, why don't you go ahead and share some of those with me? You know, I always like that. It's like, well, I live according to the Ten Commandments. Really, what are they? Uh, thou, shalt, um, um, thou shalt something or other. And so just so we know where it is, it's in Exodus chapter 20 as one example. I said, the Lord God spoke these words and said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And, you know, you just do a quick inventory of this, you know. Have you always loved God and put him first in your life? Have you ever put something else before him, your own desires? Maybe you didn't carve out a, a, a wanton image, but, you know, have you put something else before God in your life? Have you put your career and have you put your pursuit of finances or an education or relationships or something else before God? And the whole purpose of the law as we go through this is to show us that, you know what, we can't do this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. There were years where I went as a young person to a denominational church and people used Jesus' name in vain because there was too many people in the parking lot after they walked out of a church service. And you go, you know, we laugh about that, how ridiculous it is, but you know what, but that's the world we live in. And the whole purpose of God's laws is to show us that we can't keep this. Remember the Sabbath day to always keep it holy. Have you always set aside a day of the week to honor God and and, and to worship Him and praise Him? 
But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of your God, and it, it shall you do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle or your sojourner stays with you. For it was in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the, in the land in which the Lord your God lives. How many of us can honestly say before God that as children or young people or teenagers, as we are growing up, that we always honored our mother and father by the choices that we made and the behavior that we entered into? I, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of going wrong, you know, I, self-evaluation here. I'm not doing too well so far. You shall not murder. Oh, oh I didn't kill anybody. You know, but I beat some people. You know, but it's kind of like you go, well, but Jesus came along later and and said, hey, you know what? But if you hate somebody in your heart, you've murdered them. Ah. All right, wrong. You know, when you go through the list, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, you shall not bear witness, don't lie about something or somebody, don't cover, you know, in a materialistic, capitalistic nation as ours, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Ladies, thou shalt not covet thy fellow woman's Nordstrom outfit. (laughs) Thou shalt not covet that purse that you saw. Thou shalt not covet that car in the parking lot that's blocked you in because they came later than you and you had to park at the zoo and walk all the way over here in the mud and they came even later and they got to park in the paved parking lot. Thou shalt not covet that space. You know, and the whole point of all of this is, you know, we're, we're just done. And the whole purpose of God's law is to show us that, you know what, we are guilty. Guilty, 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 guilty. Man, you know what, well, I've got a problem, you've got a problem, and you know what, what's the answer to the problem? The answer is that the law of God is a tutor or teacher to lead us to our Savior. You and I cannot do what God calls us to do, and He reveals our sinfulness through His Word, through His law, so that we know that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us are righteous. We all have sinned and turned our back on God. And now the answer then is, well, what do we do about it? He says, you can't do anything about it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, he said, keep the law, honey. (laughs) I can't keep the law. Then the purpose of the law is to show us we need a Savior. And He is Christ Jesus, the Lord. To show us that we need a Savior. That's why, and what he said to this man was, hey, you know what? See, the the Jews had little what they called phylacteries, which were little prayer boxes that they actually had on their wrist. It was kind of like a charm bracelet, but it was tied on there. It was kind of the Old Testament version of what would Jesus do bracelet. And, uh, and so they had the bracelet on there, but within the bracelet, it was a box. And within the box were certain snippets of the Old Testament. And so what he was saying to him very simply was this. Well, you know, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he looked at him and said, well, you know what? What does the the word of God, what does the law say to you? How does it read to you? And he was probably pointing to his wrist. You got it right there. What does it say? And if you'll turn to Deuteronomy, this was one of the sections of Scripture that were cut out and put in this man's phylactery or prayer box. And he's saying, well, you got it right there on your wrist. What does it say to you? And in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a piece of scripture that would have been on his wrist. 
And every morning, Jews woke up, and this is what they said to God. And every evening before they went to bed, this is what they said to God. And in between is really the important thing. How did you live during the course of the day in between the morning and the evening? And he was saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanded you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you'll turn to chapter 11, another section that they would have is found in chapter 11, verse 13. It says, And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and he will give grass to your fields and your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. But beware, though, lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will kindle against you, and you shut, he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you'll go back to Luke, you'll notice what he's saying is very simple. Hey, listen, what does the law say to you? You know, you got it right there on your wrist. You've got it there. You know what it says. And, you know, you start each day saying this prayer to God. You end each day saying the same thing. And, and, and what Jesus is concerned about, what God's always concerned about in our life is, you know, what are you doing in between? How are you spending the time in between when we're praising God here at this particular moment and when we praise God and thank Him for another day at the end of the day? But what do we do in between? See, that's why He immediately answered from Deuteronomy. If you'll notice, He immediately answers And he gives the answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's the same answer that Jesus gave later when another scribe asked him the same thing. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, then you know what? You're right before God. Now, the problem with that and with this is that, you know what? What must one do? I want you to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And if you love God, then you also love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why Jesus said that all of Scripture is summarized in those two commandments. But the problem is this. It's, it's in that specific order. And it's important that we recognize that. He doesn't say to him, go out and love your neighbor and do all of these things, he says, first, you love God. And then if you love God, and you've come to repent of your sin, you've come to trust in Christ as your Savior, you've come to believe upon Him, and you've received Him as Lord and Savior, 
The love of God is then poured out into us and through us, according to Romans 5, and also 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about the love chapter, then we will begin to love others as we love God, as God loves us and loves people through us. But it starts with a vertical relationship with God, and then it's extended to other people. So what he was saying to him is very simple. So the lawyer, he said, you know what? You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now, did the lawyer come back to him and say, that's a great answer. Thank you. You know, I accept your answer as divine truth. I'll apply it to my life. You know what? No, wrong, because look at the deflection of this lawyer from the question and the answer. There's a big but there, and the big but is there for a purpose. Jesus said to him, you know what? If you do this, you'll live. Anyone but, 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 wishing to what? Justify himself. He came up with the question, well, who is my neighbor? And I like that because he didn't come up with the question, well, when didn't I always love you? When when didn't I always love God first? I have always loved God first. I have always put God first. I have always kept his commandments. And the reality of it is, is that no, he didn't. And as any good lawyer will tell you, you look for a loophole in the contract. And the loophole for him was, define neighbor. You know, that's a culture. Define is. Define neighbor. He gave the right answer, but he wouldn't apply it to himself or admit or confess before God that he had a lack of love for both God and his neighbor. Instead, he sought to justify himself, and that's where our problems always lie. He was looking to find a reason to excuse his wrong behavior before God. But God, you don't understand. If I told the truth, I might lose my job. But God, you don't understand. He's such a hard guy to love So I found someone else because it's his fault. It's her fault. They don't pay me enough. That's why I steal things, but it's not really stealing. I just looked at a deferred compensation program. (laughs) So it's kind of my way of making things right. See, confession is agreeing with God that we are wrong as he knows we're wrong. This man was confronted. He knew he didn't love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He knew he didn't keep God's commandments. He knew he didn't keep the law. And he certainly knew because he didn't do any of that, he certainly didn't love his neighbor as himself because for most part, he probably couldn't stand people around him like so many people. It's like they always have an excuse for why we don't like people. And most of the time, it's because they're just like us. I mean, you know it, as a parent, you see things in your children, you go, oh, I can't stand that quality or that character trait or whatever it is in my child. And then you look at them and go, that's because they're just like me. They remind me of me. And as we see it, you know, oh, couldn't be in my class. What did you teach? And that's the way it is. And see, instead of saying, forgive me, he wanted to justify himself. And those are the two options. We can either be justified by God 
by throwing ourselves upon God's mercy, Lord, forgive me, I am guilty as charged. I haven't always loved you. I haven't always put you first. I haven't always loved my neighbor as myself. I'm busted. You're right. I'm wrong. I throw myself upon the mercy of God. God, forgive me. Trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, the power of his resurrection, receiving him as Lord and Savior. And the Bible says that we have been justified by God. We don't justify ourselves. Justifying ourselves is just an excuse to continue to do what is wrong before God and try to feel a little bit better about it. But he justified himself. So he said, define neighbor. And before we move on to Jesus' answer, I want to throw out another warning that I see at this point that I saw in my own life, and that is this. Don't miss what God has for you by thinking that he's talking to someone else. Have you ever heard a sermon and said, man, I wish so-and-so would have been here to hear that. They could have really used that. Now, I hear that on a regular basis, and I kind of smile. And, I, and I, know, I know your heart, and I know what you're thinking. I know it's kind of like, wow, you know what? I've got this friend. I've got this person. I really wish they could have heard that because the whole time that you were preaching, the whole time you, I was listening to God's word, the only thing I could think of was how this would apply to that person. And so what I will challenge you to do today is try to set that aside and then take it a little more personally. The whole time I heard the word of God, he was speaking to me about what I need to do instead of someone else. Hey, praise God, we got the tape and CD ministry, you know, and we got those people that we're praying about. We can give it to them, but all I'm saying to you is this. Don't miss what God has to say to you as you are so concerned with someone else being obedient to him. You follow him. This man missed it because he was thinking about, this doesn't apply to me. must apply to someone else. Think back on the lawyer. And notice what Jesus answered him and said, um, why don't you go ahead and kind of just apply what you've learned, or worse yet, why don't you go ahead and practice what you preach? How many times do you think he had given that answer to those who came to him seeking counsel as far as God's word was concerned? The greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you know what? Why don't you practice what you've been preaching to others? It's truth. Now just apply it in your own life. And we are all really good at giving counsel to others, but we need to make sure that, you know, first we study the laws of God as Ezra did, did, then we live it, and then we can teach it. Because when our lips and our life, our behavior and our, our beliefs, our conduct and our creed are going in the same direction, it's a lot easier to share with others what God's word has to say for them. Now, if we, as we look at this, we go through it, and, and, and instead of you know, practicing what he preached, he was embarrassed by it. And now, since he called out Jesus in front of the crowd, he was stuck in the position of somehow or another what? Defending himself. How many times have you been busted for something that you've done? This is especially true in in marriages and relationships such as that, where it's like, you know, sir, that what your wife said was true and that you were wrong, but instead of agreeing and confessing and owning up to it, what do we do? We give them the big but answer. Yeah, but. But what? 
You know, you're driving like an idiot. Yeah, but so are they. Well, then there you go. There you have it. So that equals everything out, and the universe is back in balance for us. So isn't it, gentlemen? It's like, come on. You know, but, you know, we need to stop justifying ourselves. And as Jesus said, take responsibility for your own actions and your behavior. If it's wrong before God, no buts. I'm guilty. Confess it. I'm sorry. I agree. I made a mistake. My bad. Forgive me. And then move forward. But he wanted to justify himself. And so Jesus, knowing that, answers his question with this dramatic story. And in verse 30, we're told of the circumstance. He said, Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now, the circumstance of this, as soon as Jesus mentioned this roadway, they would know that there's trouble ahead. And in fact, not only that, they would probably anticipate trouble and quite possibly would recognize the story as historically accurate, even an event that may have occurred not too long before that. And the reason, as we'll see, is that he brings a Samaritan into the situation and it would be self-defeating to make the Samaritan the hero if it wasn't something they were already familiar with. And so he takes something and he says, well, you know what, you know that roadway. And Jerusalem to Jericho is a descent of about 3,600 feet. Jerusalem sits 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is down near the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below sea level. And it's a road that goes about 20 miles, so it's a windy road. And it gives ample opportunities for, for thieves to hide out along the way. And this is a common practice. In fact, we know that in the 5th century, Jerome tells us that it was still called the Red or Bloody Way. The bloody highway. In the 19th century, it was still common practice to pay safety money to local sheiks before you could travel on this road. So it is a road that had a reputation for being extremely dangerous. And the circumstances surrounding it were that, you know, here was a man who went down that road and he got robbed. Okay, what's new happens all the time. And in fact, some could even say, hey, the guy should have never been alone. He should have paid somebody to go with him. No one escorted him. He went by himself. They usually traveled in caravans. And our reasoning would be this. Hey, he got what he deserved. It's like, look, if the guy's not smart enough to travel in a caravan or pay somebody to go and to help him, then you know what? Then it's not our fault. He just got what he deserved. You know, he's reaping what he's sown. But that's not the story. And he goes on and he talks about choices that were made by the first two men who came alongside him. And we read in verse 31 and 32, and it says, And by chance a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And I like that because it just so happens by chance. You know what? Nothing happens by chance in God's sovereignty. There's always a purpose and a reason behind everything. And as, as this man who had just came back from serving God in the temple was going home from his week's worth of work, he came by this guy, saw him lying half dead on the side of the road, and you know what he did, the compassionate man that he was? He went to the other side of the street. Now, we can justify this behavior, just like the lawyer was trying to justify his. There's always a good reason not to act. There's always a good reason not to do something. And his was that, you know, if I went by and I touched this guy and the guy was dead, then I'd be ceremonially unclean and I couldn't serve in the temple, and that's my job. So the job is, I've, I, I'm, it's more important to me to do ceremonial things than compassionate things. But what he didn't understand, and we're all going to learn, is this, is that, you know what? If he would have been compassionate, it would have been because he was loving God first and then loved his neighbor as himself. But what he did was he only thought of himself and mistakenly believed by being selfish or self-centered that somehow he could still love God too. doesn't work that way. 
Next came a Levite. A Levite also works in a temple, not, not quite the same stature as a priest. But the Levite came by, and the word is that he used is that he saw him. Now, what's interesting about the Levite, the word saw is the same word that we're going to see in a moment with the compassion of the Samaritan, but it said he saw him, which meant that instead of walking all the way to the other side of the street at first, he actually went over and kind of checked him out. Might have poked him with a stick, see if he moaned and groaned a little bit. Looked at him, saw he was bleeding, saw he was half dead, but saw he wasn't dead. But, you know, he went, eh, no, I don't think so. And he went to the other side of the street as well. And so both of these men saw someone in need, and they bypassed them, and they continued to go on. And it goes to show you the danger and the power of a bad example by religious folks. For all of history and eternity, the bad example of these religious men has been given to us to teach us a lesson of what not to do. And it shows the power of a bad example as well as the power of a good example. And the question that I ask of myself is, what kind of example do I leave? Is it one that draws people closer to God and to walk in obedience with Him? Or does it give people an excuse to do what's wrong before God because after all, He did it and He's an example, He's a leader, so therefore it must be okay for me. And we've got to be careful because we're all leading somebody, either to God or away from Him. And notice this in verse 33, but. Now, they were probably thinking when he said, but a certain, and they probably went, oh, you know, a layperson came by. A Jewish layperson, because the Jewish lay people were kind of sick of those that were in the religious establishment as well, because they always thought they were high and mightier than everybody else. And he was probably thinking, oh, but a Jewish layperson came by. But it was but a certain Samaritan. And what we know from our study through the Gospel of Luke, Samaritan Jews hate each other. And so to use this Samaritan as the hero of the story would have had to mean that, you know what, this was a true story. And nowhere does it say that it's a parable. It's a true story that they were all familiar with. And they couldn't argue with Jesus because they all knew that it happened just like that. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came by and saw him, and he felt compassion for him. And this was like the biggest ouch, the biggest rebuke that you'll ever find. It says that this man saw him, and he didn't pass by. This man, the same word saw, went over and took a good look at him, saw what his need was, and he didn't pass by. He decided to help him. And he felt compassion. And as has been noted before in our study through Luke, every time we see that Jesus felt compassion... He did something about the need. He felt compassion for the widow of Nain and he raised her son. He felt compassion for Darius and his daughter and he healed his daughter. He felt compassion for the withered hand of that man. He felt compassion and he always took action. And if we are to be like God in our life, then we must feel compassion that leads us to action. Notice the remarkable care that he gave. We're told that he came to him. He didn't go to the other side of the street. He came to him. 
He saw and noticed his, 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 uh, his wounds. He bandaged, he bandaged them up. He poured oil and wine over them. He put him on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. He spent the night nursing his wounds. And then on top of that, on the next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. And what he was saying was, here, he gave him enough money for 24 days uh, of needs. 24 days, almost a month. He said, hey, he, this guy is in deep trouble. He may need help. I'm going to give you enough money to take care of him for almost a month. And if that's not enough, when I come back around, I'll pay you whatever else needs to be paid. I'm going to tell you something about the Samaritan. He must have had a great reputation. He must have been a man of integrity. He must have been a businessman who regularly went that route that this innkeeper would say, okay, I'll take that money, and I know you're good for it, and I'll see you the next time you're back in town. And man, what a statement that is for all of us. What kind of integrity do you have? What kind of reputation do you have? Because God says, you know what? Reputation is to be more esteemed than silver or gold. In our business world, we need to have reputation that say, that's not a man or that's not a company that's always looking to make a buck. They're in it to do a good job and have a good reputation. And I'm telling you, finances, profits, all the rest of it is a byproduct of doing what's right before God. We need to be committed to that. This man's action reflected his love for God. It was his love for God that motivated his love for even an enemy. He put to practice what Jesus had been talking about when he said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And it also helps us to understand that it's by grace through faith that we put our faith and trust in Christ first, and then the love of God flows through us to others. See, that's why people get confused about faith and works. Listen, faith always precedes works that are pleasing to God. That's why in 1 John 3, it says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And so it starts with, if you've trusted in Christ, how can the love of God not be in you who say you've trusted him if the Spirit of God resides in us? How can the love of God be in us if we turn our back to the needs of our fellow man? That's why James said, listen, faith without works is dead. You can say you love God all you want. You can say you prayed the prayer. You went down front. You signed the card. Whatever it is that you want to do. You can make that claim. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, many people have made that claim, but they are still on the road to destruction because they have never come to true saving faith. They've made a claim, but the claim hasn't been honored by the God of creation, the God of heaven, the one who causes us to be born again by the Spirit of God. And he's saying if you really want to test if you're in Christ, then how do you live your life? Faith precedes works, but works that don't come after faith means that you don't have a saving faith at all. They go hand in hand, and it is not contradictory, and it is not a conflict in Scripture. It is very clearly taught and very easily understood. If you love God, you'll love your fellow man, period. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be good at it right away, but it means we need to be moving more and more in that direction as we're conformed into the image and likeness of our Savior. As we become more like Jesus, let me tell you something. This Samaritan was a lot like Jesus. Why? Because he saw someone in need. He felt compassion and he was moved with compassion to do something about it. 
And so that's what we need to recognize and understand, that God's love is proactive. God's love initiates. He sees our needs even before we do, and, sh- and we should see the needs of others, anticipating them, sensing what their problems are, even before they ever come to us with help. If you see somebody that's having marital problems, be proactive and get involved. If you see somebody with financial problems or material need problems, be proactive and get involved. If you see people that have health issues and concerns, be proactive and get involved encourage them. Uh, become alongside of them we need to look at people and see them as God sees them because I'm telling you right now they're not going to ask us for help very few people will say I need help either because of the pride of man that keeps us from getting God's help first and then the help of one another or because we're embarrassed to ask for help, or because we've asked for help before and nobody has responded, and so we're embarrassed about it, so we don't want to ask for help. We're just not going to ask for help. Or better yet, look, everybody's got problems, so I don't want to share mine with you. You have your own problems to bear. And so what happens is, we don't share these things, and that's why God says, but Chuck, you need to be looking for those things And be proactive. Because the majority of people in the world will never ask for help. Compassion cares. Compassionate Samaritan type people aren't fooled by folks who are in need. And give the standard okay just fine answer when we ask them how's it going. How's it going? Oh fine. Really? Yeah. Sort of. Kind of. Man. What can we do to help? What's going on? How can we pray for you? And not only can we pray for you, but if there's something else we can do, we'll do that as well. This guy just didn't say, hey, you know, he went by me and said, I'll pray for you, brother. You know, I'm sure he prayed for him and he helped him. I'm sure he prayed for him while he was on his trip that, you know, he was healing fine because that's the love of God that's within each one of us who have come to faith in Christ. Too many folks are like the man who wrote the following. Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear. I wear a mask. I wear a thousand masks. Masks that I'm afraid to take off. And none of them are me. Pretending is an art that is second nature to me. But don't be fooled. For my sake, please don't be fooled. If I give the impression that I'm secure, that all is sunny and unruffled within me as well as without that confidence is my name and coolness is my game, that the water is calm and I am in command and that I need no one, but don't believe me, please. My surface may seem smooth, but my surface is my mask, my ever-varying and ever-concealing mask. Beneath lies no smugness, no complacence. Beneath dwells the real me in confusion and in fear and in aloneness. But I hide that. I don't want anybody to know about that. I panic at the thought of my weakness and fear being exposed. See, that's why I frantically create a mask to hide behind, a nonchalant, sophisticated facade to help me pretend to shield me from the glance that knows. But such glance is precisely my salvation, my only salvation, and I know it. That is, if it's followed by acceptance, if it is followed by love. It says, it's the only thing that can liberate me from myself, from my own self-built prison wall, from the barriers I so painstakingly erect. 
says, it's the only thing that, I will, that will assure me of what I can't assure myself, that I am really something. Who I am, you may wonder. I am someone you know very well. For I am every man that you meet. I am every woman that you meet. I am every child that you meet. I am right in front of you. Won't you please love me? Isn't that the truth? See, compassionate people understand and accept those words. You know, they possess the the glance that knows. And you know that glance. If you've ever been in need and you've shared with someone and they look at you and they look at you with that look like, "I I know what you're going through. See, 2 Corinthians 1 says that we are to comfort one another with the same comfort by which God comforts us. I have been there. I do know. I know what you're going through. And I know our God is sufficient in our time of weakness. See, I never could say that. I I could have never said that to anybody, at least about health issues till recently. I'd never been in a hospital. I'd never been sick with nothing more than a cold or a flu, and very rarely. I'd only had one surgery when I was a little kid, when I was nine years old or so, for an eye injury. That's it. And somebody reminded me that several years ago I had made the statement, look, if you're in the hospital, don't call me. I don't do that very well. And some of you may know because I've come to visit you and I hugged the wall and I stayed up against the wall, man, afraid that whatever you had I was going to get. <laughs> and, and, you know, and the, the, just, you can't be a pastor and have that kind of heart. And so now I know. I know what it means to wait for the results of a biopsy. I know what it means to wait to see what your CT scan and your MRI has to have to say. And I know. And I can tell you because I know that it'll be okay because the same comfort that God comforts me is the same comfort he'll comfort you and that we need to turn to him because you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can sing Jesus loves me in an MRI machine. I'm not saying it's on key. No one can hear it anyway. I got that jackhammer going. Da, 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 da. So it doesn't matter how I sing in there. But now I know. See, in, in whatever you have gone through, you have gone through for a reason. And the reason is so that you can say to someone else in a loving, compassionate, caring way, I know I've been there. And we both need to go back to trusting in our Savior, trusting in our God, trusting in our Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and acknowledge Him in all your ways and He'll set your path straight. You know what? I don't have answers for all of that and neither do you. But I do know this, that we got a God who cares. We got a God who loves Because he sought us out and first loved us even when we were walking in rebellion from him. So he's a good God and we can trust in him. And if we've trusted in him, then his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion should flow through us to others who are in need of his touch. I've called people on the phone and I like to use the line. I said, you know what, God put you on my heart and I know that you're going through something. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I called just to give you a God hug just to let you know that God knows what you're going through. And he wanted to use me today to call you, to give you a God hug, to tell you that it's going to be okay because we know how it all turns out at the end of the day. 
See, if we're to reach this world with the word, we must show folk, folks, first of all, that we care for them so that they will hear what we know. You know, people will not care about what we know until they know that we care. We got to love people first. Jesus always loved them first, and then they were open to listen to his gospel. Which brings us to the conclusion of Jesus' message in verse 36 and 37. It said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Can you just picture the scene? This guy standing there at first, all cocky, thought he knew everything about the law, didn't think Jesus was the real deal, thought he was an imposter and a phony, dug a big pit hoping that he'd get him to fall into it. And here was this guy ready to take the final plunge into the pit that he dug for Jesus. Jesus said a very simple question, who do you think of the three men that went by proved to be the neighbor? Well, fortunately, the guy stopped trying to justify himself and said the one who showed mercy toward him. He said, that's right. Go and do the same likewise, or literally says, go and keep on doing it likewise. You go and keep on doing it likewise. See, the lawyer wanted to discuss neighbor in a general term. term. You know, it's kind of like, who is my neighbor? But Jesus forced him to recognize his neighbor as a person. See, you know, it's the old definition. You know the difference between a recession and a depression? A recession is when a whole bunch of people are out of work. And a depression is when you're out of work. That's the only difference. And that's just the truth. You know, it's one thing to talk about a whole bunch of people being out of work and having pity on them. It's another thing to do something to get people jobs. See, it's one thing to, you know, put people in this unknown big lump category of people It's another thing to make him into an individual person, an individual face, an individual soul. And what Jesus did was he took it out of debating this thing forever and said, I'm going to take this general term neighbor and I'm going to put a face on him. And he's the guy that was laying on the side of the road, beaten half to death. And what are you going to do about it? See, we need to make sure that we recognize and understand that, you know, he moved from duty to love or debating to doing. And it's not that God doesn't want us to debate and have certain conversations or discussions. But one thing that I've learned in my past 20-some years of walking with the Lord, and that is this, not every committee is committed. And what that means simply is this, not every committee that gets together is committed to actual do something. There are people who love to talk about things forever. But there's a point where you have to take action. And so we need to discuss those things, but we need to be committed about putting those things to action. Talk about it all you want. Let's do some things. Let's get it done. You can talk about how we should have helped the guy, what we should have did, how to do it, what to do, and the guy would die. He'd bleed to death. We need to do things. One of my favorite and closing D.L. Moody stories illustrates this point. It was great. He was, he was attending a convention in Indianapolis. And Mr. Moody asked a singer by the name of Ira Sankey to meet him at 6 o'clock one evening at a certain street corner. 
So he got Mr. Sankey there. He put him on a box. He stood up, and Irv Sankey began to sing. And what happened as he sang, he generated a lot of interest in what was going on. Crowds of people started to come to hear him sing. And at a certain point where there were so many people that were there, then Moody said, okay, let's go head on inside the church building. Goes inside the church building. It gets filled up with people, and he has an opportunity now to reach these people with the love of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He confronts them on their sinfulness and their need to repent from sin. He confronts them on, with God's love that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He told them that they needed to confess and agree with God. They were guilty sinners that they needed to turn from sin, throw themselves upon the mercy of God, be justified by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ to trust him as Lord and Savior. And people were responding to the gospel. And just then he looked out and the people who were holding the convention were were coming to the back door and he said we must all leave the building now for the people that were coming the convention wishes to come and discuss the question how to reach the masses ouch but his point was well taken we can talk about reaching the world with the word we can talk about sharing the gospel with others but you know what don't miss from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you praise God for another day that he's given you, don't miss this huge window of opportunity called today. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Religious observances do not mean you love God or your neighbor. There are a whole bunch of people filling up a whole bunch of churches, even at this moment in time, and it doesn't mean they love God or they love their neighbor. It means that they are observing some religious thing that they do. Professing to be religious doesn't guarantee eternal life. What does? Confession and agreeing with God that we are sinners, that we fall short of God's glory. Repentance or turning from sin and turning to God throwing ourselves upon his mercy at the cross of Christ. God, forgive me. I'm guilty as charged. And I believe that you say that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. The sins of the world and the predetermined plan of God put Jesus Christ on the cross. We need to come back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was raised again three days later. He is alive today that all who come to him and throw themselves upon his mercy... He is alive and can offer eternal life to all who believe upon him. Have you believed him and trusted in him as your savior? If so, then you know what you must do because you've already done it to obtain eternal life. For those of you who have not, today is the day of the Lord. And if God's speaking to you today, you need to respond to his spirit. You need to confess and agree with God that you're a sinner. You need to trust in Christ, his death upon the cross, the power of his resurrection, and you need to receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. And finally, love for God is demonstrated in love for anyone who is in need. Who is my neighbor? Anyone who is in need. May God's love flow through us to them so they're attracted to our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity once again of your word. But more importantly, thank you for your spirit who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God, I pray right now for those who are here that may not know you personally and you are tugging on their heart today. May they respond here and now, simple prayer. 
Father, forgive me. I can't keep your commandments. What was said today is true of me. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen. I've hated people, I've coveted, I've wanted what they have. I wanted their job, their promotion, their material things. I, I didn't need to hear any more. And I believe and I trust you when you say that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. That he was raised again three days later. He's alive today and I know that you hear my prayer even now as I pray it. God, forgive me. In the best of my ability, I believe and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And God, I pray for all of us who have come to know you and your spirit resides within us. That we will love others as this Samaritan loved his enemy. That we will be proactive and seek out those who we hear are having difficult times, not waiting for them to come to us, but us going to them as you sought us out. God, may we have hearts of compassion, hearts like Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.